Good morning. I, I, I need a helper. Micah, would you come help me? It's what you get for sitting close. Okay. Um, so this is Micah, everybody. So I want to make sure that Micah feels safe at church. All right. So um, we're going to make, here, you put that on. All right. Get that going here. Okay. Um, there's that. Okay. Oh, and then we got here some safety glasses. That's important. Oh, yes, you, you came equipped with your own. Okay, cool. Um, uh, let's see. Hat, all right, hard hat, you never know, because you never know, I mean, there's lights and stuff up here. Okay, so, um, and some good heavy-duty gloves, all right, so get those going. Um, got that, they, they fit good. Okay, good, we had it, oh, there you go, all right, yeah. A little tough to get on, but boy, howdy, they, they're good. Um, you think he's safe enough? No? Okay, so we got, um, here we go, we'll do uh, this, just, just bubble wrap the boy, um, there we go. Okay. Now, now you're safe, right? We got, he's safe. Everybody, he's safe. Okay. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Here, um, why you take, take that and uh, have fun taking that stuff off. Okay. Um, don't, please do not trip. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Give the teenagers a roll of bubble wrap. Genius. Absolutely genius. What was I thinking? We are in a moment now that we have been building to for a hundred years. Starting in about the 1920s, our culture has been, been moving toward this place that, that, that is obsessed with safety. This has been, this has been ongoing for about a hundred years, but really in the last oh, I don't know, what's today, the end of January 2023? Really about the last three years, it's picked up. Have you noticed this? (laughs) Now, to be fair, ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, people have been looking for safety. They've been looking for a place of refuge. It's become almost a compulsion for modern people. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that safety is bad. I'm really not saying that, all right? I'm not like red-green who's kind of the Canadian Tim the Toolman Taylor, you know, he says, you know me, safety forced. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying, all right? Um, and and I, because I'd be a total hypocrite to say that. When I'm, you know, the reason I, I bought those gloves, because I, I want them. I, 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 they're, go, they're going in my collection. They're really good heavy leather gloves. I don't do anything in my garage. So like, I wear gloves all the time. I'm just constantly, I wear safety glasses all the time. I, I try to be as safe as I possibly can whenever I'm doing work like in the garage or the yard or, or whatever. Um, I, every day I pray that God would keep my wife and my children safe every night when they go to bed. I pray that God would watch over my kids through the night. I'd be a total hypocrite to stand up here and say safety's bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying safety is a bad thing. I'm saying safety is a bad God. So where do we find it? Well, that's what we're going to see in our text today. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. 
1 Samuel 24. Thanks for being here today. For those joining us here in the room, I'm grateful that you did. Thanks for being here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, if you're kind of new, I'd love to meet you. My name's Casey. I'd love to learn yours. Uh, I'm not promising I'll remember it, but I'll try. And uh, (laughs) when we're done, I'd love to to have a chance to greet you. For those watching online, thanks for doing that. Uh, It really is super important that uh, you, like we mentioned earlier in the video, uh, fill out that online um, connection card, but also uh, the survey. Um, people have asked, like, why are you gathering this information? What we're doing, um, you can remember with an acronym, ABCD, okay? ABCD stands for Asset-Based Community Development. Uh, And and what we're trying to do is gather the information. A lot of people, when they go, I want to do something good in the community, they start with, well, what are the needs? And the, the increasing thought is that's the wrong place to start. Start with, what do we have? That's the asset-based thing. So that's part of what we're doing is, is just trying to gather that into uh, a, a database. So if you could help us out with that, that really helps us take those next steps into leveraging the power of the gospel to change our community. And, and we're excited about where God's leading. I had a meeting this week that was just kind of like mind-blowing. Like the stuff that God is lining up for us, church, is off the hook. It's incredible. Uh, and you'll hear more about that in coming weeks. That really helps us. So if you could do that, please. We're continuing our series called You Are Here. And over the last several weeks, based on a trip to Israel that I had the opportunity to take last fall, we're talking about how these places that that were long ago and far away can really affect and change our story here and now. Today we're going to talk about a place of refuge. Our our You Are Here place today is the spring of En Gedi. Let me show you a picture of it. So here's kind of the, down near the, the base of this spring. It's in the Judean wilderness. It's just, um, just west of the sea of, of the, the Dead Sea, rather. Um, it, it, and I know that En Gedi sounds like a weird name of a fantasy world or whatever, like it's made up. Gedi is the Hebrew word for goat. So, so En Gedi is the spring of the goat. And, and there's a connection in terms of nomenclature to goats in the text, and you'll see this. First, though, let's go there. Watch. Hey guys, this is a place of refuge. This is the bottom of the spring of En Gedi in the Judean wilderness where David hid out from Saul in 1 Samuel 24. We're gonna read that today, but you can see here, this. I'll show you some pictures in a little bit of the areas surrounding this area. It is barren, it is dry, but just look at the water pouring out of this spring. This was a place of safety. David could retreat to this rock. Let me show you, it goes all the way up through there and there are some caves. There are some places where David could get away. This was David's safe place. This was where he got away from Saul, he hid out, and then in one powerful encounter, Saul went into those caves and and David proved that the true safe place, the place of ultimate safety, is a place of righteousness and integrity. Just because you have water, just because you're far away from your enemies and you're surrounded by strong rocks, that doesn't make you safe. What makes you safe is integrity and righteousness. I want to show you that video first because when I show you the pictures of the area surrounding it, I think you'll appreciate that even more. Here's the region around En Gedi. Let me show you a couple pictures. So En Gedi is a national park for Israel. A lot of the places that you go on a pilgrimage are. And you can see the body of water out between the gap of the rock. That's the Dead Sea. So this is just on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And I mean, it's just, it's other than this spring in the area around it, it's a moonscape. It's just bare, it looks like the American Southwest, just barren, dry rock. A couple plants every now and then. Let me show you another picture. 
You see, like, it's just, it's just raw. There's just rock everywhere. And every now and then, you'll see a little tree. Um, there's a paved pathway. I ask our guide, so you saw me at, in the video at the bottom of the spring, right? The water's just gushing out of there. I ask our guide, how long does it take to get to the top? Like, go all the way up. He said, four hours hiking. I said, how long do I have? He said, 45 minutes. <clears throat> um, Anyway, and that was after begging for more time. Here's another shot. This is just, this is the area around the Dead Sea. They don't call it the Dead Sea for nothing, y'all. It, it is, it, it looks like the moon. I've, I've been to Craters of the Moon National Park in Idaho. It looks really similar. It, it, it's, it's dry, it's dusty. This, you can see, here's, here's the, the, the aerial shot. I didn't take this. Um, so Dead Sea in the foreground, and you see the tiny little spot of green and then just brown everywhere. Up through that gorge, that's En Gedi. That's where King David hid, or David, I guess, hid from King Saul. It's especially valuable because it's one of only two springs of fresh water on the entire western shore of the Dead Sea. And, and you know, things are able to thrive there because of that fresh water. Uh, it, there are some fields along the base of it where they can actually have some, uh, some agriculture. Um, what happens is the rain comes off the Mediterranean, it falls on the western slope of those, the foothills that you saw, but that rock is really porous. And so it filters down through the rock and goes into the aquifer and it just dumps out of that spring. Okay? This is the place that David chose to hide from Saul. Remember, if you remember the story, right, um, the, the people sing this song that, that Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David is growing in popularity with the um, Israelite people. They're increasingly thinking Saul may not be the guy, and he's getting jealous and tries to kill David, pin him to the wall with a spear. David's on the run, and as part of that, he hides here. Let's look at the text together, 1 Samuel 24. Again, Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel. By the way, David's men were outnumbered five to one. And set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So you saw the cliffs, right? That's, that's a, like I said, he, Gedi is the Hebrew word for goat. So you're going to see that kind of through here. En Gedi is the spring of the goat, the crags of the wild goat. It's not like a place in Lord of the Rings, okay? It's... It's Hebrew language. So Saul took 3,000, or I read that. He came to the sheep pens there, right? Sheep, goats. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That means everything you think it means. David and his men were far back in a cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. There's no record of God revealing that to David anywhere else in 1 Samuel. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Do you know what anointed is in Hebrew? Mashiach. It's our word Messiah. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, and I want you to notice this detail. The text does not say when Saul looked up. It says when he looked behind him. What that means is that Saul did not get very far out of the cave. Because when you look at the landscape, as soon as you leave, you're going down pretty rapid. Like you're, you know, there's an elevation change. Here's the point. 
Saul's just outside the mouth of the cave. He's just far enough. He's not back to his men yet. He's closer to David than he is to his men. But he, so he's just out of the cave. That's the, the picture I want you to see in your head, right? When, when um, Saul be, looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. He's not accusing Saul of being an evildoer. He's saying, my motivations are right. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my case and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? Now, we're inclined to go, he's just being polite because of the generational difference. No, it's literally his son-in-law. Remember, Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. So when David calls him my father and he calls him my son, there's literally a family connection here. He, when he said, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? Implied answer, no. <laughs> May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. That was very common in the ancient world. When a new house came to power, you kill off the old one so there's no possible threat to your, your uh, family uh, keeping the throne. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. In his book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, author and researcher Frank Ferretti writes, safety is more highly valued than any other condition in the culture of fear, acquiring the status of a moral good that trumps all others. Later in the book, he writes, the rhetoric of safety has acquired a status of a commanding narrative in many parts of the world to the point where it has a quasi-religious quality. Does that sound familiar? Our last three years? <laughs> Do you know when he wrote that? The book came out in October of 2019. <laughs> I, this is a professional opinion. That's borderline prophetic. Like, wow. And, and to think that, that all this stuff, we live in a dangerous world that, that's full of fear, and the siren song of safety is becoming more and more a false god for many. You see, here's what I think this place, this place of Engedi, this place of refuge can teach us. The safest place in a world of fear is a life of integrity and righteousness before the Lord. 
The safest thing you can do is live a life of integrity and righteousness. So how do you find refuge in God by living a life of integrity and righteousness? I think the text suggests three steps. Here's the first one. Step one, do the rightest right. Do the rightest right. It's kind of an interesting position to find yourself in to have more than one right option. Have you ever been in that situation where, where you've, got, you've got to make a choice and it's not like you have to make a choice between a good and an evil or a helpful thing and a hurtful thing. It's, we have lots, we, there's four or five different right things we could do here. So what is the rightest right? I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we try to teach our children, right? It's just, I want you to choose the rightest right. Say, what would, if Jesus were living your life, what would he do in that moment? What's, what's the rightest thing? What, do you, what could you see Jesus choosing in that situation? Okay, do that. And I'm not sure that David passes that test here, right? Because he recognizes that what he did, while not being the worst thing he could do, was still not right, right? He, he, he cut, cutting off the fringe of Saul's robe certainly wasn't the worst thing he could do in that moment. Now, Saul's robe would have been utterly unique in the kingdom. It would have had a, a unique fringe. It would have been ornate. Nobody else would have had something like this in Israel, Right? So it's, it's unambiguously Saul's. When David stands outside the cave of En Gedi and holds it up and says, look what I have in my hand, there's no confusion. He's not like bait and switch. There was one of those cloaks. One. <laughs> and David has a piece of it. Some people have said, well, that's symbolically, that's David transferring the kingship from Saul to himself. Well, I suppose you could look at it that way. But David acknowledges this just a few verses later as being wrong. The text says he's conscience-stricken. Sometimes we do things that, that aren't the rightest right. And he, church, here's what I want. This, this deeply affected me this week. Just personally, when, when I was working through this passage, sometimes we fool ourselves, or we try to fool ourselves into thinking that not doing the worst thing we could do is doing the right thing. It's not the same. Well, I could have done this, but I didn't. That doesn't mean you're right. And I, just to be perfectly transparent, there have been so many times that I bought into that lie. I thought of a bad thing I could do. I didn't do it, so I'm right. Right? No. No. This text is encouraging us to do the rightest right. In fact, Saul leaving the cave and going on his way in verse 7, it hints the idea that he knew nothing about what David had done. Which, to me, the way I read the text, Saul is still wearing the robe. He probably wrapped it around his shoulder or something. Uh, others have suggested maybe he hung it on a rock or set it aside. I, don't, I think he's wearing it, personally. Maybe it's just because it makes a better story. I don't know. But I, I, so this is some serious, next-level, black ops kind of stuff, right? For David to do this, now granted his eyes are adjusted to the dark, he was way back in the cave, but he sneaks up, doesn't make a sound, cuts off a corner, like was the, there's no, that knife was sharp, there's no ripping sound, there's no tearing sound, he cuts off a bit. Now I don't know what's going on in the cave, remember, he's in there to relieve himself, maybe Saul just needs more fiber, I don't know, but he has no idea. None. And he comes, he comes out of the cave, and a couple seconds later, David pops out, and he's holding up this piece of his, the fringe of his robe. <laughs> and Saul is probably embarrassed, 
and ashamed in front of his men? Because it's not like David picked his pocket, is it? He's got a knife. He didn't go up there to cut off a corner of his robe. He's armed to kill. That was the intent. He listened to these men in his group that are telling him to do this. You know, he, he intended to kill Saul. He chose not to do it. It's not the worst thing he could do, right? Still not right. Remember when Mike Goodwin, the comedian, was here? <laughs> he goes, that ain't wrong. It just ain't right. Same kind of idea. The text says David is conscience stricken. Literally, the text says he was struck in the heart. Now, you need to understand that the Hebrew word for heart here, it, 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 it's more than just what we, we, the organ that pumps blood, and it's even more the way we use it metaphorically, like your, your emotions. The Hebrew word is much more comprehensive. In, in Hebrew, your, your heart is everything that's not tangible about you. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions, it, it's, it's just the, 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 everything about you that's not physical. In Hebrew, it was your heart. And David says, the text says he was struck in the heart. So conscience stricken is actually a pretty good translation because we don't have a word that adequately describes this. And, and so he says, like, he rebukes his men. You know, they tell him to do this, and he gets up there, and he almost does it, and instead he cuts off a corner of the robe. Which, I mean, that, that verse, it forces us to ask the question, who are you allowing to speak into your life? Who are you listening to? Because if you're listening to people who aren't helping you do the rightest right, you probably need to find some new people to listen to. David's men tell him to do something that is very, very, very smart, but it's also wrong. And David wants to do the rightest right. Who has your ear? Be sure it's God and not just our culture, because our culture is saying, yeah, do the right thing, but make sure you feel safe. If you don't feel safe, it's not right. Listen, our, our young people are dealing with this right now. It's not just them, but it's especially them. Where the, the whole culture is saying, if, if, you, if you don't feel safe, then that's not right. If, if someone makes you feel safe, then whatever they say is good for you. Sometimes, I don't know if you guys know this, sometimes people lie. I know! We need to do the rightest right. And that isn't always the safest thing. In his book, The Colors of Hope, Richard Dahlstrom describes what he calls the safety first mentality. According to this perspective, he says in his book, the key to living well is living safely if you have the safety first perspective. So Dahlstrom writes, lock your doors at night, get an alarm system. Save 10% and make sure your investment is insured. Take your vitamins, minerals, omega-3s, ginkgo, bilboa, and St. John's wort. Eat lots of soluble fibers. Exercise. Get eight hours of sleep. Go to church regularly, being certain to drive carefully both on the way there and on the way home. It's best if your car is the biggest because then you're the safest. Don't go on mission trips to places where you might contact staph infection, malaria, intestinal parasites, or face a terrorist plot. Risky hobbies? Forget it. Read books instead. Eat organic. Get a colonoscopy. There, that should do it. Now you're safe, right? Well, not really. Pistol Pete Maravich, extraordinary athlete and specimen of fine health, died at the age of 40 while shooting hoops. He didn't smoke or drink. Meanwhile, the oldest woman on record, Jean Calment, who died in France at the age of 122, stopped smoking at 117 because her eyesight was so bad she couldn't see to light the cigarette. <laughs> it's, it's true. 
He goes on, the safety first posture is wrong on several levels. First and most significantly, the good life is never defined by Jesus in terms of either length or comfort. To the contrary, Jesus says those who seek to save their life will lose it and those who lose their lives, spilling them out generously in service to others because of their love for God and humanity will find it. I need you to understand this. The rightest right does not always equate to being the safest thing. And we live in a culture that, that, that bows down at the altar of safety. It's not a bad thing, it's a bad God. The rightest right can be a very risky thing. I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So if you lean into righteousness and integrity in all things, does that mean you'll get taken advantage of? That wicked people will hurt you? Yeah, probably so. I don't say you go looking for that, but yeah, that's probably what that means. Say, well, Casey, that that concerns me. Don't let it concern you because of step two in in this text. You see, step two is you let God defend you. You let God defend you. David's men insist that God has delivered Saul to David. So, so we ask the question, well, did he? He didn't say that he would. They're making stuff up. They're putting words in God's mouth. So we ask the question, did God do this or did God allow this? There's a big difference between those. I mean, maybe God is testing David here. Maybe God is testing him. And if so, David passed the test, but he passed with like a C minus. Like he, <laughs> he could have done better than he did. So why, why would his men tell him this? Why would they say this? Well, the reason that they say that God has delivered him into their hands is not just because he had the opportunity. It's because the odds of it happening are so stinking low. Let me show you another picture, right? This is where I filmed that video down near the water. This is looking across to the other side of the cliff wall. In the lower right center of the screen, you can see that little cave. That is one of hundreds of these. They're pockmarked all over this place. It's like someone took a picture of Angeti, you guys remember, right? And they just poked holes in it everywhere. There's just little caves everywhere, all over this place. And, And there's just, everywhere you go, there's caves and crevices and places to hide, nooks and crannies. Right Now, the, the place, if you hike all the way up there, you find this, right? Here's the other place they've got. Um, pretty sure the sign wasn't there in David's time. Um, like, <laughs> hey, Saul, he's in here. Um, no. So this is, this is what traditionally where they think that this might have happened. I, I'm skeptical. I, I, we don't, we, there's so many, we don't know. That's the point. We don't know. And so when of all those caves in this whole region, and it's huge, Saul happens, happens to end up in the one where David and his men are in, they see that as a sign. They're like, okay, here it is, David, here's your shot. Look at this, God just teed up a a fast one right down the middle for you. Here we go. (laughs) And David for a second believes him. And he heads up there. And then he's convicted. Cuts off a corner of the robe and he's, he's, he's convicted there. I mean, the odds are crazy low that they would end up here, but 
I mean, I think we have to ask the question, like, what happens when God does something that doesn't fit your little view of what God should do? (laughs) Then what? How do you respond? Well, you trust God to defend you. You trust God to take care of it. Listen to me. This forces us to ask, when God allows something that runs counter to your expectations, do you just discount him entirely? Do you just chuck God out of the equation? Or do you adjust your thinking? Happily for David, he doesn't just kick God out. He allows the Lord to convict him. The Hebrew text indicates that David really saw what he did as a moral wrong. And he chooses to let God defend him. It's brought out repeatedly. In fact, there's almost a little too much repetition for us. Probably this was designed for an oral audience to hear. So they just keep hearing David say, I'm going to let God avenge for me. I'm going to let God take care of this. I'm going to let God handle it. Because we read it like over and over and over again. In fact, it's not wide of the mark to say that one of the hallmarks of of a righteous person, a person of integrity, is that they don't feel the need to defend themselves in every point. Like, I'll just let God defend me. I'll I'll let God do this. Basically, David tells Saul, you should have died today, but you didn't because I'm trusting God to work this out. And so in verse 12, when David is calling on God to judge between them, it, it, I think it forces us to look in the mirror and, and, you know, ask the question, to wonder to ourselves, why is it such a struggle for me to trust God to work in this situation? Why do I have such a hard time trusting him to do the right thing? And I got to tell you, church, when I have done that, when I have looked in the mirror and asked that question, I, I'm, I tend to be uncomfortable in that moment. I'm not, I think you should do it. I'm not saying you'll like it, but I think it's good for you. Why do I have such a hard time trusting God that he's going to handle it? I'm going to let God defend me. <laughs> I, I think we ought to partner with him in his work for justice in the world, but I don't know that we got to go looking for it for ourselves. <laughs> Pastor Rick Warren wrote, every time you're under attack, criticized, put down, misunderstood, you have two choices. You can defend yourself or you can let God defend you. Which will it be? Who do you think can do a better job defending you? Uh, Yeah, God. He says, pay attention to this. You're most like Christ when you say nothing in the face of attack, lies, and other unfair criticism. You're most like Jesus when you remain silent and leave it in God's hands. Paul echoes Jesus' teaching in Romans chapter 12, and he writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do we do in this process to to embrace a life of integrity, to find our refuge in God and God alone? You do the rightest right. You let God defend you. There's one more step in righteous living, and it's this. Don't be an idiot. (laughs) Let me tell you a story, and then I'll explain that. Dr. Jack Bukema had a diamond that was really valuable to him. Um, It had been uh, his his grandmother's, and um, she... She gave, gave it to him, and it, it came down through the family, um, and he got this ring, and he, he took it out of its women's setting and put it in a man's setting, and he wore this ring for like 40 years. And he was at a conference one time and, and was walking out, went for a walk late at night, and got held up, got mugged. Two guys came up to him, pointed a gun in his face, your money. 
And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out his money and gives them that and the money clip, the silver money clip and everything, just without even a moment's hesitation. And they go, uh, uh, your watch. Well, his watch had been a really expensive gift from his brother. Just takes it out, unclasp it, hand it to him, no problem. And, then, and the ring. <laughs> and all of a sudden, his back foot drops back and his hands come up like Notre Dame fighting Irish. He says, you're going to have to come take it. Miraculously, they ran off. He files a police report, and the officer talking to him said, um, Jack, I just have to tell you, you're an idiot. He said, when someone points a gun in your face, you just give them what they ask for. Just what are you doing? What are you thinking? See, there's one final step in learning how to find refuge in God by living a life of righteousness and integrity, and it's don't be an idiot. Now, I, I have to... <laughs> I have to confess, I giggled, I giggled a little bit when I wrote the outline, but I'm 100% serious. All right? Somebody's like, what are you talking about? Where are you going with this? Look at the very end of the passage. Look at verse 22 again. All right? It says, so David gave his oath to Saul, promised not to wipe out his family. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So Saul has David's public oath. He said it in front of other people not to wipe out his family when Saul dies. Saul goes back to his capital, Gibeah, which was the capital of Israel at the time. David goes back to the stronghold. What's the stronghold? En Gedi. He goes back into the cave. He's still hiding out. Why? Because he couldn't, he didn't trust Saul further than he could throw him. And 1 Samuel tells us Saul's a big dude. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Like, he doesn't trust him. One lesson in this text is that when even your enemies praise you for your righteousness, I mean, that's a, a telltale sign that you have conformed your life to the, the character and nature of God, but it doesn't mean you just ignore people who seek to do you harm. Yes, like Jesus said, you turn the other cheek, but you keep them in one eye. Trusting God to defend you does not equate to being an idiot. Right? Forgiving someone who repeatedly hurts you is not the same as allowing them to abuse you over and over and over again. And I think Jesus is our model here too. John chapter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Do you know who these people are in John 2? They're his followers. This is not the Sanhedrin. This is not the Pharisees. This is not the Sadducees. This is not the teachers of the law. These are people who follow Jesus. They were his fans. Even at his trial, Jesus is trusting God to defend him. That's why he's silent there. He doesn't speak except to Pilate because Pilate's treating him, trying to be fair, but his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus doesn't speak at all. Why? He's trusting God to defend him, but he also knows, I can't trust these people. He's not an idiot, and you shouldn't be one either. You don't have to throw your brains away to follow Jesus. So you do the rightest right, you trust God to defend you. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> see, here's the thing. The, the, the compiler, the editor, the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see how David is taking refuge in God by living a life of righteousness and integrity even while still occupying a pretty safe place. So where do we go with this? The philanthropist uh, John Shedd wrote, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And I guess my, my challenge to you today is this. Jesus did not call you to a life of safety. He called you to a life of integrity and righteousness.
Trust him in that. Do the rightest right. Trust him to defend you. I mean, don't be dumb about it. But put your life in his hands. Some of you are struggling to do that. You keep opting for what the world says is safe. And Jesus is trying to call you to be his follower. And that involves a little more risk. And so I guess my challenge for you today is follow Jesus, not the world. Some of you have never made that decision. And I want to challenge you today to put your life in Jesus' hands. He is the safest place. To surrender your life to him as Savior and Lord. To be baptized. To walk in discipleship to him. But you will never find a safer place than the hands of Jesus. No matter what the world does. And some of you are wrestling with that right now. You're like, there's something maybe that like, I know, I know what I need to do. And maybe it's just telling someone next to you, you might want to go to the next step room and talk to someone. We'd love to do that. We want to come down front and pray with you. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you to help you take that step of faith with God, to trust him and not what everybody else says is safe. I'm not sure how God is leading you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you today.